As you know, we have begun a series of messages over the season of Lent, uh, looking at the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're focusing primarily on the first part, the first section, and uh, we're going to continue uh, to, by reading Lord's Day 2, first of all, <coughs> then after that we'll look at the passage. So I will read the question, but I ask for you to respond in unison with the answer, and it should be on the screen behind me. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. That gives us the theme or the topic that we'll be looking at that God's law is what convicts us of our sin. Now we're going to read an account that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. It's the account of the rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who, then who can be saved? <clears throat> 
Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned early, earlier, we began a series of Lenten messages, specifically focusing on the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is to support or to supplement or support the scripture readings that we also choose. Now, Lord's Day 1 is what we looked at last week. It's a wonderful declaration of what stands at the center of our Christian faith. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And a very shortened form of the answer is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I often think of that question and answer. There are several times in my life when I went through difficult times and it gave me comfort in knowing that I can find that peace in who Jesus is. We can be at peace with God because we belong to Jesus. And we must realize that he alone provides salvation for us. Question and answer two breaks down what the rest of the catechism will address. The question is, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So those three concepts provide a breakdown of the three main categories that are covered throughout the rest of the 52 Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some remember those categories with the words sin, salvation, and service. Others prefer the three G's, guilt, grace, and gratitude. But however you choose to remember the categories, they do proceed sequentially. So the very first step is to realize, to acknowledge, and to confess the depth of our sin and misery. 
And by, by the way, that word misery, since the Heidelberg Catechism was written in the German language, elende, means to be alienated, to be someone who is away from your home. So the, the whole idea is before we can appreciate that which Jesus Christ has done for us, before we can respond with a life of grateful living, we must admit that apart from Christ, we are completely lost in our sin and disobedience. And the truth of the matter is this. There is nothing that we can do that will earn our salvation for us. We may think that we're doing quite well. But no matter how hard we try, we are by nature sinful people. And that's kind of where we left off last week. The quickest way to determine our sin and misery is to look into the mirror of God's law. God's law is what tells us how to live. And by God's law, it's all of the written word of God revealed in Scripture. When we look at ourselves in light of God's law, we realize just how far short we come. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's quite humbling to look in the mirror. And the closer you get to the mirror, the more blemishes and wrinkles that seem to just jump out at you. When you see yourself in the mirror, do you say, wow, look at me. I'm the best looking person on the face of this world. I'm perfect. I don't think so. Songwriter Mac Davis, many years ago, this kind of dates me, wrote a humorous song. And part of the lyrics are, oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. Obviously, it's humorous. We laugh at those words because the last thing that we are thinking when we look in the mirror is just how perfect we are. And if we did think that, we wouldn't be living in reality, would we? In our scripture reading this morning, we encounter a rich young ruler. And in many ways, he truly does believe that he is perfect in every way. The young man declared that he indeed has followed the commandments and has been obedient to them. But as we'll find out, Jesus knew better. Notice that Jesus after he gave his excuse, looked at him and loved him. I think that's an important phrase. Jesus saw through the outward veneer of morality. Jesus knew that the young man loved his own possessions more than anyone else, God or neighbor. Now as we look at question and answer four, and as we just spoke it a few minutes ago. It's the summary of Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all of your soul, 
all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's all summarized in that one word, love. Do we truly love God and therefore love our neighbor? We cannot have a divided love. We can't love God and our neighbors while also loving our possessions. So looking again at our text, we find a rich young man coming to Jesus and he's kneeling in front of him. And he asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer that Jesus gives is actually a little surprising. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we have to realize that Jesus is not denying the fact that truly he is good. But rather, he wants to affirm that true goodness is only found in God alone. And I think behind that question is an implied revelation that the goodness that Jesus has is rooted in the goodness of the Father and that he also is God. Jesus then proceeds to give him an answer to his question. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. We have to realize as well, as we anticipate the response of this young man, that Jewish law was very important to each and every Jew. The commandments were posted on their doorway as they entered their home. When they entered into a time of prayer, Jewish men 13 years old and older were required to wear a phylactery on their forehead and on their arm. I found it interesting if you're right-handed, you had to wear it on your left arm, and if you're left-handed, on your right arm. But that was the tradition. They were little small black boxes with little scrolls on the inside that quote from scripture and, and remind the people of what God said to them about who he is and the obligation that they had to keep God's law. Now, we need to keep in mind that during that particular time, the Jewish people followed a large set of laws and rules, 613. These were set forth by the Pharisees. According to one of the articles that I read, Orthodox Jews still believe that those 613 laws are still valid for today. Now can you begin to imagine the weightiness of trying to keep all of those laws perfectly. We have to remember that as we look at the young man. We have to realize that he did obviously want to obey all of the laws. And in his mind, he thinks he has. 
He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Basically, he was saying I was obedient. I did what the commandments required. And yet, Jesus could tell that something was missing. As I highlighted earlier, we're told Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus could have reprimanded him. How can you say that, that you've obeyed them completely? You have no idea what you're claiming. But he doesn't. Jesus knew his heart. He knew that this man truly was struggling with a deep level of dissatisfaction in his life. Why would he ask that question? Unless all of his particular law-filled life of obedience was less than fully, fully satisfying. That's why we're told Jesus looked at him. And he knew he simply loved him. The statement that Jesus makes really strikes at the core of that question of this uh, rich young ruler. He tells the man that indeed he is missing something. He says, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Looking into that mirror of the law only magnifies our inability to keep the law. I appreciate one commentator who says we may like to think that this is merely spiritual advice that is given. That is to avoid the idolatry of money. But for Jesus, economic justice is foundational for the kingdom of God. Abundant wealth in the midst of grinding poverty is simply unacceptable. Now as I was reading that and as I was putting this message together, what I noticed is that Jesus does not say to this man, fulfill your obligation and give 10% tithes. Because we think that's significant. I give 10% of my income. But if you really think about it, it means we have 90% to use as resources in the building of God's kingdom. God only says 10%. So the rich young ruler was told, give it all away. Sell everything and then give it to the poor. And he knew that he couldn't do that. He knew that his possessions were the God that he worshipped. And so he walked away pondering that truth. Now I have to admit I was tempted to 
offers some differing opinions on the next part of the text, which talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's easier than a rich or wealthy person to enter into heaven. Uh, and I hate to disappoint you, I'm not going to go down that direction. The most important concept is that the rich man knew, based on the understanding of the law, that he was, or at least he sensed, he was violating the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's where you and I also need to look and ask ourselves some questions. We have to examine the inner heart. Studies indicate many congregations today fashion their ministry after a consumer mentality. It's what our culture teaches us. We live in a culture of acquisition, an economy that focuses on bigger, better, and more. And this perspective can infiltrate the church as well. Many times, the churches that are in the spotlight of media promote this narrative. It's the perspective that as a church, the quickest, the most effective way to get people in the doors is to identify what it is that they really want and offer to them. And so the gospel message is watered down, sometimes even neglected. Worship of God is turned into entertainment, trying to find personal excitement or satisfaction. Basically, wanting to acquire possessions that we want or emotions that we want to experience. But loving God, putting God first, means denying the self. It says that the disciples were confused, that they were astonished, and we can understand why. That's a pretty radical concept. Give away everything. Who could actually do that? In fact, their Jewish faith taught them that riches and possessions are a sign of God's blessing. So as they're thinking this over, they ask Jesus, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And that brings us back to where we started, and that's the main point. No one can be saved who thinks that he or she can perfectly obey the law. We look into the mirror of God's law and we see the imperfections. We know that we fail. And I love the response that Jesus gives to this young man. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What he's saying is the law is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That's why we give our all to him. The law shows us our sin 
and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ as our true righteousness. It's not about us being obedient and righteous. It's what Christ has done on behalf of us. We often will recite either the Ten Commandments or at least some direction from God's Word in our worship service. And sometimes it's a confession followed by an affirmation of God's forgiveness. We promise that we, when we, or God promises that when we our, acknowledge our sin and sorrow and repentance, we will be able to receive his forgiveness because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. When we see our fallen condition, when we focus on that, we're convicted of our sin and disobedience. In the Heidelberg Catechism, that's why the very, very first item to address is to make that admission. We are unable to save ourselves. And that's why Lord's Day 2 ends with question and answer 5. Can you live up to all of this perfectly? And we read that response. The answer is no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Isn't that a little bit harsh? Isn't it exaggerating a little bit? It isn't. The commands, the Old Testament covenant was based on the written document. When, when Moses went up the mountain and God wrote down the Ten Commandments and, and then he delivered it to the people of Israel. But what Jesus is saying through this is in the New Testament, God's promise and covenant is based on the life-giving Holy Spirit. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that truly changes a person's heart. When the Holy Spirit truly enters into a person's life and controls that person's life, he or she will then desire to obey God's commandments. Now, as we leave this place, it, it would be easy for us to just say, oh, that was a nice message. That was a good reminder. But we need to take something with us. How do we fare when we look into the mirror of God's law? Do we truly love God first and foremost? Is he the first in our lives? Or could it be that we, like the rich young ruler, are hanging on tightly to other gods or things that capture our hearts? Do we truly love God with all of our heart? The whole idea of the heart is that which is fundamental to our innermost being. The Bible says that out of the heart flows the issues of life. So is God the root source of everything that we desire? When we wake up in the morning, until we go to bed at night, are we filled with the love of God?
Do our thoughts and meditations center on Him throughout the day? Do we love God with all of our soul? Soul indicates the deep, where the deep, deepest uh, purposes in our lives reside. Many say that it is our will. And so do we truly rely on God every moment of the day? Is, is God truly our all in all? And does our love for him compel us to want to live for him? Do we love God with all of our mind? The mind, as we know, refers to our, our mental thinking and judgment. Do we think through everything in our lives, through the lens of God's love? Are we paying attention to that which is good and wholesome and fulfilling? Is that what we are thinking about? Do we love God with all of our strength, with all of our faculties, everything that we do, the places we go, what we see, what we hear? Does it all focus on loving God because of who he is? And then do we take that same love and show it to our neighbors? The Bible says, the greatest of all of the spiritual gifts is love. It's easy to love when a person is lovable, when that person is kind to us, when a person shows favor to us. But God says, love your neighbor. He doesn't differentiate God's love is constant and steady. When we look into the mirror of God's law, we realize, we truly realize how much we need Jesus. One scholar writes, when the Holy Spirit makes a sinner bear all before a holy God, he's not only guilty on account of what he has done, but also on account of what he is, that is, what he must be and is not. Love must be all-inclusive. It must include my thoughts, my words, and my actions. It must include the whole of my life. So when we look into the mirror of God's word, his commandments, we do realize the depth of our disobedience and sin. And as a result of that, we acknowledge we need our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how often we hear others say that they basically are good people. They can point out many others who are more evil than they are. 
But Lord, as we reflect and sometimes pass judgment on them, we must truly ask ourselves how we view who we are, whether we are focused on doing instead of being. It is easy to fall prey to tradition or doing things to make yourself feel better. But as we just read today and we're reminded of in this passage, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves that we can enter into the kingdom of God. It is only through what Christ has done on the cross. We focus on that during this Lenten season as we think and reflect upon what happened at Calvary. Lord, we were exiled from the Garden of Eden. But when we think of the Garden of Gethsemane, that's when we see what truly was given for us, the shed blood of our Lord. May that, O oh Lord, come to the forefront of our minds. May we live lives that are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.